0: This is They Create Worlds, Episode 49, Old and Elite. Welcome to They Create World. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. hello. Welcome to year three of They Create World. I know we don't celebrate this too often, except, you know, every September. (laughs) But we have been doing this for starting our third year. That's true. It's kind of hard to believe. Uh, we've been recording slightly longer
1: than a year because, of course, we did record a few episodes before we actually released the first one. But yeah, this is episode 49. So this is officially starting the third calendar year of this whole experiment of ours. I'm kind of impressed, if I may be so, for a second here, that we've managed to get one out two weeks like clockwork uh, that entire time so far.
0: I blame lack of sleep. <laughs>
1: That'll do it, and of course, all kudos to that really goes to Jeff. I'm just the on-air talent. He's the one that actually edits these together so that we uh, sound like real people and not these strange guys that sometimes have completely random pauses in the
0: middle of sentences. I'm so keeping that in there.
1: Well, that's the point. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, so happy third anniversary to us. Woo hoo!
0: We also. Uh, along with this, I'll—I've actually had this for the last year and a half or so. But I actually bought the theycreateworlds.com domain. So I'm just letting you all know that that domain exists. You can go there. The normal Podbean site is actually still there. Mm-hmm. It's just sublinked as com. but you can still use the other thing. None of the other Links and stuff, so you don't have to update anything. It's just another way, an easier way to remember and to find. They create world,
1: something that we'll hopefully do some more with in the future. This domain, this website, but as of now, there's there's not much there. We're still just trying to get this darn thing recorded and released every two weeks at this point.
0: (laughs) Right, and it's not like I'm some sort of like social media mogul who knows how to market everything to high heaven. Need to get some of that internet money not sure how that works either.
1: <laughs> Neither am I.
0: <laughs> but what I plan to do by the time this episode actually goes live is to at least have a bit more information on that website. I actually have links on there to Alex's blog, the Podbean hosting for where the podcast actually lives, and a link off to the YouTube live channel. If you don't follow us on Twitter, what I sometimes do on weekends when I'm going to sit down and just edit and edit and edit for a long period of time. If you happen to follow us on Twitter, I will announce if I'm going to live stream me editing. So feel free to follow that and keep an eye out. Usually most Saturdays or every other Saturday, I if I plan to sit down and do a really long session, I'll do that. I've done this probably about Twice so far as we were doing the Atari Mm lead-up. So far, so good. I had a couple of people who have actually popped in there, asked some questions, just listened and enjoyed. So you get a little bit of a sneak peek of the episode to come, a little bit of the editing process that goes on, and what the heck. You can ask me questions, and sometimes I'll even shoot questions off to Alex via text message if there's something for him, too. And every now and then, Alex listens. Oh, sure. But anyway, on to today's topic, and that is Elite Dangerous, but not the modern game. The old, old Elite. The original Elite. That's not even dangerous. That's right. Uh, The
1: granddaddy, really, of all open world games. I can't say that it was necessarily the very first game ever created that had an open-world concept, but certainly at a time when games were still largely considered in the arcade mold, in this kind of, you put a quarter in and play for three minutes and then put another quarter in and eventually you die, a game where there is kind of infinite possibility to play it any way you want. As we discussed at the end of our racing episode when we were talking about genres that lead the way technologically. We were talking about how today open world games are really the showcases these days in AAA for your modern technology, because it's all of these different gameplay mechanics and all of these different artificial intelligences, etc., interacting with each other in a complex way to create a world that evolves and changes in response to your actions. Certainly, Elite back way back in 1984 was not all the way there, but you can draw a straight line from Elite to that kind of gameplay today. So even though it's not quite as well-known a game in the U.S., or at least it wasn't as well-known until Elite Dangerous hit, if one were to make a top-ten list of the most important games in video game history just in terms of their influence, I think you would have to put Elite in it. I mean, it's that important a product.
0: Personally, I've never actually played Elite, the original Elite, but I do know about it from a programming standpoint, because the techniques involved with that game is fascinating. Sure, which is of course something
1: we'll we'll get into in more detail later. Uh, but I mean, suffice it to say, uh, for now that there's no way that an eight a primitive eight bit computer of that time should have been able to render such a huge eight galaxies, two hundred fifty six worlds a galaxy kind of setup should not have been possible with the amount of memory on the computers in that time period, but as, as we'll see, they had some very, very clever techniques to make that all work.
0: <laughs> so to start us off, who were the lucky people who came up with this thing? Sure. So let's start
1: by going back and reminding ourselves, and I say reminding ourselves because we did talk about this a little bit in our British software episode, what the British computer and computer game market really was at this time, because Elite is a game that came out of the United Kingdom. Unlike the United States, where the computer game market was often focused on a slightly older audience, more of a college student audience, with more sophisticated games like RPGs and adventure games with puzzle solving and military simulations, uh, both of the strategy variety and the flight simulation variety, The British market in the early 1980s was really dominated by the teenage bedroom coder. This is the individual whose parents have heard, because the British government was really pushing this, that the computer was going to be the wave of the future, and that little Johnny, and it really was usually little Johnny because back in those days there was this idea that We don't allow girls near these complicated and scary technology things. Little Johnny is going to need to know how to program a computer in the modern economy. Not just be able to use a computer, not just be able to figure out what a mouse is, but actually program the computer to live in the modern economy. And Britain, whose traditional manufacturing economy was kind of in tatters at this point, really saw the computer as something new that could lead Britain into a new economic era. So because of that, all the parents thought that their kids needed to have a computer so that they could learn how to use these. So you saw a lot more purchasing of computers as opposed to video game systems in British homes, and then these budding young computer programmers would learn BASIC, sometimes learn Assembly, and start creating their own games, often based on the arcade games of the time. Unlike the American market, where the more arcade-like games were really more confined to the consoles, though there were some on computers as well, in Britain, where you didn't have much in the way of consoles because of the high cost of import and the high cost of purchase, you had a computer market that was dominated by a teenage crowd and was really churning out Arcade clones, versions of Space Invaders and Asteroids and Defender and Pac-Man and all of these games that were so popular in the arcades both in the United States and in the United Kingdom during the early 1980s. The two gentlemen that created Elite were two of these teenage bedroom coders, David Braben and Ian Bell. They didn't know each other when they were in high school. I mean, they didn't grow up together. But they were both very interested in math. They were both very interested in computer programming. And they were both using games, both as an outlet to learn more about programming, and because while they were able to secure themselves the computers, they really didn't have the money to buy too many games on their own after that. So if they wanted games, they had to do either type in listings from magazines or create their own most of the time
0: really what you would think of as the typical nerd of the time.
1: Absolutely. They were two of the bedroom coders that were driving the industry. Though, when they were in high school, when they were teenagers, they weren't doing much professional stuff. Ian Bell did get an Othello game published. David Braben was working on some games, but I don't believe he got anything published as a teenager. One thing that set these two apart is that they were not using Sinclair computers. The vast majority of bedroom coders were using the products of Sinclair, the ZX80, the ZX81, the ZX Spectrum. As we talked about in our British hardware episode, those computers met a very good sweet point on power and price. They weren't very powerful. They weren't that great of computers, but they were cheap and they had just enough power that you could do some things with them, and then they were cheap enough that the average British working class, lower middle class, whatever, home could actually buy one. So that's usually what you saw. Both of these individuals, though, were actually using Acorn computers. And we did talk about Acorn as well in our British hardware episode. Just to recap very briefly, Sinclair was the first company to put out kind of a homegrown computer kit. And the creator of that kit was an individual named Chris Curry. Chris Curry thought that the home computer was going to be a big deal. Clive Sinclair, the founder of Sinclair, never really did. We talked a little bit about how he never really believed in home computers, never really wanted to be in home computers. But because home computers kept doing well... It just became so convenient to keep releasing new computers to fund all the other things that he really wanted to do, like his televisions and his funny little three-wheel cars and all of that kind of stuff. So he eventually kept making computers, but that was never really his thing. So after the Mark 14 kit, this first kit came out, he didn't really want to pursue it any further. Clive Sinclair was kind of done with that. Chris Curry very much wanted to pursue it further. And this led to a rift between them. I mean, they were friends in addition to, to working at the company together. And this was really the beginning of a, a rift that tore them apart over the, over the next few years. And Chris Curry leaves the company. He joins with a friend of his that he's met, uh, an Austrian named Hermann Hauser. Together, they found this new company, Acorn, in Cambridge, which is where Sinclair is as well. Cambridge is kind of a technology center, Cambridge University has always been known as the Mathematics and Science University. That was the University of Sir Isaac Newton. Oxford was seen as more of the classical studies great university, and Cambridge was seen as more of the math and science. It's kind of, in a way, I suppose, like Harvard and MIT in the United States, though those two are, of course, actually in the same town, coincidentally named Cambridge itself, whereas obviously Oxford and Cambridge are not located right next door to each other. Cambridge is a kind of technology incubator area which allows them to hire some programmers and some hardware people into their new company, Acorn, and they create a computer called the Acorn Atom. Their computers tend to be more expensive than Uncle Clive's computers, but they're also a little more functional. That kind of puts them out of reach of the typical consumer, though, as we kind of just talked about a second ago. But as we discussed in our British hardware episode... They actually adapt their computer technology into a new hardware system that the British Broadcasting Corporation chooses as their official computer, and then subsequently the British school system chooses as their official computer, the BBC microcomputer. So just like back in our day, the Apple computer was a ubiquitous thing in your school environment, the BBC micro is what you had in schools but most people had a Spectrum in the home. Braben had an Atom in the home. He didn't have a BBC Micro the next step up, but he had an Atom, whereas Ian Bell had a BBC Micro. So they're programming on this other platform that is a really slightly more proficient platform, slightly better platform than the ZX Spectrum, but because of the cost is in very few homes, so there isn't nearly the same level of a games industry present on the BBC Micro just because many fewer people actually own one at home. So both of our heroes here, Braben and Bell, matriculate to Jesus College at Cambridge University after high school, and that's where they meet. They meet in the dining hall. One of the dining halls is actually the first time they meet, and they immediately bond over their shared interest in computer programming and the fact that they're both acorn programmers rather than spectrum programmers in the home.
0: Sort of a unique mantle to bear. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: And completely coincidentally, both of them are toying around a little bit with the idea of doing some kind of 3D space combat game, completely separate from each other. Ian Bell's working on a game called Freefall, and David Braben is just kind of experimenting around with things because he hasn't really published so much yet, whereas Ian Bell is actually a published programmer, even though he hasn't published much.
0: Seems kind of ambitious because we've talked about the hardware of the time the ZX Spectrum and the Acorn and the others, Mm -hmm. some of them have really took a lot of very specific shortcuts in order to just bring costs down, which is why you had a lot of the interesting artifacts. So having a computer of that era trying to do something 3D, that's extremely ambitious.
1: It really is. It's really hard. And of course, this comes down quite simply to processing power. You have one 8-bit processor. With no support chips, no math coprocessor, no graphics coprocessor, no nothing. And then you're expecting this processor to do everything. It has to do the calculations for the graphics, it has to run the game, it has to run the AI, it has to do every last thing. And it's just this relatively slow and relatively limited 8 bit processor that doesn't leave a lot of processing time to do something as complex as drawing coordinates on the X, Y, and Z to get that wireframe, because we're certainly not talking trying to do filled polygons, shaded, flat shaded polygons here, get that wireframe image up there on the screen and moving around smoothly, while you also have a background star field that is moving around and and all sorts of other crazy stuff. That is a lot to ask one simple little 8-bit processor to do.
0: So, we really didn't have that come about really until the mid 90s when 3D polygons really took hold.
1: Exactly. There were a few games that did it before the mid 90s on computer platforms, home computer platforms, but the trade off was that it tended to be pretty slow. It wasn't really until the mid 90s when you had 3D graphics acceleration hardware, when you had separate boards or separate chips that were dedicated solely to getting them polygons on the screen and moving them around, that you could have that consistently. Elite was one of the first games to try to approximate that on a home computer platform in a period when the hardware was far more limited. Like most programmers did, they had started out learning BASIC. They were starting out trying to program in BASIC. But it was impossible, absolutely impossible, to do a 3D game in BASIC. Because whenever you are using a high-level language, it always slows things down a little bit because you have to interpret between the high-level language and the actual hardware that you are running your program on. That always adds another layer of calculation, essentially, that has to be done, which slows you down. BASIC is a particularly slow language because uh, since it's a language that's made for beginners, it has a relatively restricted range of commands, and so it's it's a very limited language and Just interpreting that and translating it into what the hardware wants to do is just it's incredibly slow,
0: not only that it when it translates from a high level language to assembly code, when you're coding that, that program does it inefficiently when it translates over. However you have something done in a high level, it has only one way it knows to translate that set of commands over mm-hmm. while if you know how to program an assembly directly mess with the registers you could do little shortcuts and tricks in order to make the code a lot more efficient instead of wasting cycles doing this doing that what the high level code does for you as an assumption because it has to be able to handle all eventuality absolutely so
1: very quickly they have to start Learning assembly language. And this is still before they know each other. They're both assembly language coders by the time they know each other. But you have to do it in assembly because that is the only way you can even pretend to get the speed that you need in order to do this real time 3D environment. So they're both working on these games separately and they both meet each other and they both hit it off. So they decide what we should combine our efforts. Obviously, this was especially true of David Braben because. Here's a guy with a BBC microcomputer. That's the future. I mean, the Atom's time has already passed because very few people are on Acorn computers to begin with, and now we're at the point that if you are on an Acorn computer, it's going to be a BBC micro. It's not going to be an Atom. So they decide to collaborate together. And they quickly decide that they want to do this a little bit differently. We talked before at the top of this episode here about where the market was, that the market, even in home computer games in the United Kingdom, was very, very focused on arcade-style games and arcade-style mechanics. It's actually pretty amazing to think about how long the influence of the arcade persisted everywhere, far longer than it should have, quite frankly. Take a game like Super Mario Brothers which originated as a home game. They made a version in the arcade later, but it was a home game first. Why do you have limited lives? Why do they just give you three lives and then you can get some one-ups or jump on a turtle in the right place 10 million times to get infinite one-ups? Why do that? Why have points? Why have points? And even in in Mario, the points are pretty vestigial. I mean, they don't mean much except for how many fireworks you get at the end of a level. (laughs) Which is only important if you speedrun the game. (laughs) Right. Exactly. But why have three lives? Why not let you try as many times as you want? And if you die, then they start you over at the beginning of the stage, and then you try from the beginning of the stage as many times as you want. It's a home game. You can play it as much as you want. Why do that? It's not just to artificially inflate the amount of time it takes you to play the game. Obviously, when games were smaller, there was an incentive to make you have to repeat content over and over and over again, make games hard. Otherwise, you'd buy your $40, $50 game, and the actual amount of time it may take to actually beat that game if you go through the whole thing flawlessly may only be an hour and a half. And we're not talking a speedrunner, just a regular person, you know, an hour and a half. So you pad it out so that they get 10 or 20 hours out of that game by making it hard enough that they have to repeat. So there's that element to it. But things like Three Lives and Game Over well, that's an arcade thing. In the arcade, you have to have a way to artificially end playtime because you are entirely dependent for your revenue on the quarters that are being dropped in that machine. And if somebody is playing your game forever on a small number of quarters, then you have just lost a ton of money on that arcade machine. There's no reason Super Mario Brothers should have three lives and one-ups and all of that. Certainly no reason Super Mario 64 should. Super Mario Odyssey is finally getting away from this. There are not going to be lives in Super Mario Odyssey. And I realize, of course, that in Super Mario 64, they put one-ups everywhere. Super Mario Galaxy, they put one-ups everywhere. If you ran out of lives in one of those games, you weren't playing the game right, because there was always a place to
0: pick up an extra life very easily. Or even if you did run out of lives, the decrement was practically nothing. Exactly. Oh no, you ran out of lives. You get kicked out of the level...
1: Mario's going to cry now.
0: Or something. <laughs> yeah, right. But lives persisted for such a long
1: period of time in the Super Mario Brothers series, not because they were really needed for any of those games, but because that's the way games were designed back then. Miyamoto's first game was Donkey Kong. I mean, Miyamoto started as an arcade game developer. Many of the early console programmers started out as arcade designers and programmers, and even the ones that didn't were often porting games. From those systems and leaving the same mechanics in. So the entire market was focused on an arcade like experience, even in the home where such an experience did not make so much sense. Now, in the United States, you kind of had two paths because you also had the transition of the kind of university computer lab style game that you would find on a mainframe or a mini computer that was meant to be more of a problem-solving or more of a, a longer play form kind of game that was completely divorced from the arcade. I'm talking primarily your role-playing games and your adventure games. So in the United States, you had an alternate commercial track on computers that still wasn't an open-world track necessarily, but it wasn't just a linear action game, three lives, you die, extra life at 10,000 points, something special at 15,000 points, whatever. It was a little more open-ended in that. In the United Kingdom, you really didn't have that, because as we said before, they were aimed at a teenage market, they were aimed at the same market that was buying the VCS in the United States, or the Intellivision, or the ColecoVision, and they were just converting the arcade hits, because that's what those consumers knew. They didn't know these fancy pants. I mean, the first mud started in the United Kingdom. the The concept of these kind of games existed in the United Kingdom, but... Not at the level of the people that were buying the software, because it wasn't college students and older, it was teenagers. So they kind of wanted to change this. They wanted a game that wasn't just the same old, we're shooting things in space, and we get points for shooting things in space, and the more things we shoot, the more points, and we have limited lives, and we'll get extra lives for points, and yada, yada, yada. They didn't want to do that. They loved those kind of games. They were fans of Defender.
0: But they wanted to break the mold.
1: They did. They very much did. The first thing that they kind of had to do is they had to figure out, okay, we're not having points. If we're not having points, what are we going to have? Because even in an open-world kind of game, and they weren't even necessarily to an open-world game yet, but even in an open-world kind of game, you need objectives. You need things to strive for. You need something that is measuring your progress. This is the early 1980s. This is the, the greed-is-good era. Margaret Thatcher is the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, and she's the one that's pushing the computer as kind of the driver of the modern British economy, but she's also the one that's driving this idea that there needs to be a British economy. <laughs> the British economy has kind of been shaky in some ways for a long time, and this is about a new entrepreneurial Britain. It's a very right-wing view of an entrepreneurial Britain. We won't get into the, the politics of it on a, on a video game podcast, but it's it's not necessarily a vision of Britain that was popular everywhere, and it was particularly a vision of Britain that was not popular in the universities, which tended to be more socialist, and Thatcher was very right-wing. Braben and Bell themselves were not Thatcherites. They were not advocates of Margaret Thatcher, what Margaret Thatcher was doing, but you had Thatcher in the UK, you had Ronald Reagan espousing similar views in the United States, and so this was a period of time When entrepreneurship, entrepreneurial spirit, and the value of the almighty dollar, or the almighty pound, was something that was very important in society. And so they decided that if we are not rewarding people points, we are going to reward people money. That will be the medium of advancement
0: in this game. And of course, if you have money, that can be traded for goods and services.
1: Absolutely, and so if you're going to have money, it makes sense to be able to use that money to upgrade the ship that you have, to improve your ship over time using that money.
0: Better engine, more gun, cargo, docking station.
1: Automatic docking. (laughs) Side note, but those that play elite know that docking in the space stations was the worst thing ever because the space stations rotated just like... Theoretically, a a real space station probably would to maintain its gravity, and you actually had to line up your ship with the entry hatch, which is rotating, and you had to do that manually, and it was very easy to screw up and crash your ship and die. You could buy (laughs) an automated docking upgrade for your ship that regulated that, and that was a pretty uh, popular purchase.
0: Probably one you bought as soon as possible.
1: Right. You have money and you have upgrades. So if you're getting money for blowing up ships, why are you getting money for blowing up ships? Piracy! Precisely. They didn't want you to be this horrible pirate just blowing up innocent ships all over the place. Though, as the game developed, I will hasten to add that you did have that option. You could go pirate in Elite. But in its basic... (laughs) but But in its basic conception... They didn't want it to primarily be that. So if you are shooting people for money, then there must be bounties on those ships so they are pirates or smugglers or criminals of some kind. So why? Why would you go out and get money and upgrade your ship and shoot these things, collect these bounties? Why would you be doing that from a story perspective? I mean, they're, they're thinking, why logically is your ship venturing out into the world and why would your ship want to be a part of all of this? And it was Ian Bell that came up with the answer to that question. It's because you are able to buy and sell commodities.
0: You can be a privateer. You can go out there and be a cargo hauler. Mm -hmm. I want to haul these goods from this market to that market because if I buy it here, buy low, sell high, I will make extra money. I can take that money and buy that all-important auto-docking program. That's right. And if I really can't survive well enough in order to do those trades, I can barely dock as it is. It takes me 30 minutes to dock because I have to be (laughs) so careful. How about I go kill some pirates over there for money so that when I do dock, I can buy that auto-docking program so that my trading runs can go better? (laughs)
1: Sure. Sure. So that's where they came up with this idea of the trading component of the game. Now, Elite was not the first game to ever implement trading in space. This is something that had been done before. There was a mainframe game in the United States called, I believe, Space Trader that was implemented in roughly 1973 or so. And it had this idea of buying and selling commodities. There was a game in the US that came out just about the same time as Elite, it might have been a little before but it was roughly the same time, called Sundog Frozen Legacy that was a similar concept. So it wasn't the first time it had ever been done, but I don't believe Braben and Bell were influenced by those other programs, and they've certainly not claimed any influence, and it makes sense that there wouldn't have been, because what was going on in the United States at that time had not really penetrated the United Kingdom at that point. Certainly the mainframe stuff wasn't, and American software didn't really start hitting the British industry that much until the C64 started becoming really popular and common in Britain, and until you had companies like U.S. Gold, more in the kind of 1985 time period, starting to heavily import American software. It's not that American software was... Completely unfindable, but there certainly wasn't as common, and there certainly wasn't American software appearing on, say, the Atom or the BBC Micro that our two gentlemen here had, because those were quite simply computers that were not in the United States. So it's not unique to them. They're not the first one to do it, but I think it is really a parallel evolution that they came up with it around the same time independently. What they've done now is they've created this entire open ended concept. You're not going for a high score anymore. The points don't matter. You still need to collect money, but you're not trying to have more money than anyone else, like when you have more points than anyone else. You are specifically gathering money to update that ship of yours to be more effective in what you're doing. You're not just getting an extra life at 10,000 points, like in a typical arcade game. Instead, You're getting incremental upgrades to your ship and to your capabilities the more money you bring in, the more you're able to accomplish. You're going to be set loose in this galaxy with really no more guidance than here's the universe, here's your ship, and go out there and accumulate money to improve your ship however you possibly can. Not putting any limits on how you want to do that. If you want to take bounties and shoot things and and kill them for money and collecting bounties, you can do that. If you just want to haul cargo from place to place and buy low, sell high, they did have an economy with different planet types where different commodities had different levels of value based on the supply and demand in the particular systems, you could just be a space trader all day long. If you wanted to go rogue, you could try to go pirate yourself, and you could attack innocent civilian ships and steal their cargo, because every ship that you destroy has the chance to drop some cargo, and then you have to watch out for the law, because there are space police in the game. So there's a lot of different ways to play this game, and no one's telling you where you have to go and what you have to do at any given time. It's just, here's the galaxy, have fun.
0: You could explore, too, as I recall. Sure. I know you can definitely do that in the newer Elite Dangerous. You can just explore the galaxy and just experience the joy of exploration. Yay, I went to Beetlejuice. Yay, I went to Alpha Centauri. Sure. I can see the sight, such as they are. Such so.
1: Such as they are, yes. Right. And not just exploring, but you could also actually, when you're going to these places— mine asteroids and stuff as well. So that's another way you could accumulate wealth is through asteroid mining as opposed to to shooting things or hauling cargo or what have you.
0: You can create your own goods.
1: Absolutely.
0: That means that this game must have been massive. You're talking about, you said, an entire galaxy. So with probably hundreds of planets in it, all of them have stats. You have to have this Computer AI with all of these kinds of ships, programs, you have an economy there. This thing must have taken up like 30, 40, 50 disks, cost $700.
1: (laughs) They fit the majority of it into about 6 k
0: give or take. That seems like cheating.
1: (laughs) Well, and of course it was cheating, right? I mean, it had to cheat because there was no way on a BBC Micro with very limited memory and... Remember, much of that limited memory it has is taken up just making the computer work. Not all of that memory can actually be used for your game. (laughs) They shoved most of it into about 6K. Big 3D wireframe graphics and a universe, I should say, of eight galaxies, 256 worlds. So, yeah, I mean, that should, in theory, take a massive amount of memory in order to store the data on that many systems. 256 times 8, that's, that's a lot.
0: <laughs> that's a lot of space, so it's almost like some of the earlier games in, say, the PlayStation era, where, oh, you decided to go to a new galaxy? Insert Galaxy 2 here.
1: <laughs> right, but there are shortcuts, and the big shortcut is procedural generation.
0: And we came across that before with Sierra and doing artwork.
1: Right. This is, a, this is somewhat similar to that. So as a reminder, uh, Sierra's early games, early adventure games after Mystery House, included very elaborate at the time, full-color graphics. They're very crude and very silly-looking today. But for the time, they were absolutely amazing because there's no way that pictures like that were small enough to appear on the discs of the day. So what they did is instead of putting the pictures themselves on the disc, they put the drawing instructions to create those pictures on the disc. And using those draw and fill commands, the graphics were actually drawn in real time on the screen. And since these were text adventure games, primarily, where the graphics were just static images... That worked because it's not like you were redrawing the graphics every frame in order to simulate movement. It's just still pictures on the screen. They used coordinates in order to get around that. Well, this is a bit more complicated than that because you can't even store all the coordinates you need in memory to create something this massive. You just can't put even all of those numbers in the limited amount of memory we have. But there is something uh, that can help in this situation called the Fibonacci sequence. Are you uh, familiar with Fibonacci
0: sequences? It's been a while since I had those math courses and now that like, I deal with those in the typical day-to-day workspaces.
1: Well, I'm not a mathematician myself, so what I'm about to say is probably going to make real mathematicians listening to this broadcast shake their head in utter despair, but... It's close enough to get the point across that that we're making here. With a Fibonacci sequence, you start with a seed. Your seed being your first number or couple of numbers that your entire sequence is going to be based off of. Uh, And in a Fibonacci sequence, you basically start with two numbers, and you can choose any two numbers you want. And you add those two numbers together to get a third number. But those first two numbers are your seed. After that, your sequence continues following a set of mathematical rules as to how you're going to manipulate those numbers in sequence. You're going to add X amount, subtract X amount, whatever. Now, in a Fibonacci sequence specifically, that mathematical function that you're doing is you are actually continually adding the last two numbers together. So you have your seed, you add those two numbers together to get a third. Then you add that third number to the second number to get another number. Then you do the last two numbers again, last two numbers again, on and on until you get sick of the entire process. By doing so, you're going to get a series of random numbers in the sense that when you choose your first two numbers as your seed, unless for some bizarre reason you decide to do all the math yourself first, you don't know what order the numbers are going to appear in, and the numbers are going to appear in an order that seems random. There's not going to be a pattern to the way the numbers appear. It's not like you're just multiplying by two and then multiplying by two and multiplying by two so that it's a predictable set of numbers. It gives the appearance of randomness, but as long as you start with the same seed every time, it's actually not going to be random at all. It's going to be the same set of numbers every single time you do it because you're starting with a seed that is the same every time.
0: Sort of like a pseudo-random number generator that you typically see in cryptography. So in that case, you have, whenever you encrypt something, you have some sort of one-way hash, whatever's being used, and you have a seed or key that gets used in that in order to encrypt and decrypt your thing. Similar-ish to that, if you're familiar with those concepts.
1: Sure. Sure. Elite did not actually use a Fibonacci sequence because there were some limitations that I'm not up on, I'm not technical on this, but David Braben himself and talks has said that there were certain limitations in using a Fibonacci sequence, I think one of which was that the sequence would repeat too soon, you'd start getting repeated numbers too soon in the process for it to be any good, and I think there were some other problems as well. The Fibonacci sequence is the germ of the idea, or the, the seed, if you will, of the idea of what Elite used, which is we will start with a seed, and then from that seed, we'll plug that seed into a random number generator with a fixed manner of manipulating the numbers. We will use that to generate a galaxy randomly. But it's it's pseudo-random, because because they have a basic amount of control over it, they can guarantee that once they generate a galaxy from a particular seed as long as they use that seed every single time that a galaxy is generated when you're starting a new game or whatever it will always be the same galaxy so it allows them to create a huge universe cuz it's really universe i keep using the word galaxy but it's eight galaxies so it's a huge universe using very little code because you're just giving it the seed and the basic parameters on how to manipulate that seed. That's all you have to put in code. Everything else is generated by the game in real time when you start up or whatever. But you're guaranteeing that it's going to be the same thing every time, so you know it's going to be something that works. It's not going to generate something completely randomly at the beginning of the game, and then you start off in a system where you literally cannot reach any other system in the galaxy because of the way they're spread apart. You're not going to get that. You have consistency using very, very little code and very, very little memory space so that you can have a huge galaxy unfold in front of you all through uh, pseudo-random number generation.
0: So instead of having the ability to have infinite universes, we're saying, we're going to pick one and we're going to cherry-pick this so that it falls within the constraints that we want for our game The amount of fine-tuning manipulation we need to do to this is minimal Mm -hmm. versus us just having it be completely random and you start playing and find out, oh, if I use that number, (laughs) I appear to be surrounded by black holes. Right. I'm doomed. New number.
1: Exactly. And they're certainly not the first people to do this. Pitfall on the Atari VCS is a very famous example of this. Pitfall has a pretty darn large world that Pitfall Harry travels through in order to collect treasures within the time limit. But it's the same world every time. I mean, everyone who plays Pitfall experiences the same world. But again, David Crane created a game that I think it was 256 screens. We always have these multiples of 8, of course, because that's the way the computer world works. We have an 8-bit processor. We have the 8-bit byte, so our memory is in chunks of 8. It's not a coincidence that we're talking about 8 galaxies, 256 worlds, 255 or 256 screens, depending on whether you're counting from 0 or (laughs) 1. That's very much tied into the memory on these computers. But I, I believe Pitfall was 255 screens. The way he did that on a cartridge that had 4K of memory and a VCS that had 128 bytes of RAM was, again, he used a random number generator with a consistent seed in order to build that world, taking up very little storage space. So Elite's not the first game to do it. It's probably the first game to create a world or a universe of this scale doing it. That's pretty darn huge, but it's not unique to them. They were still one of the first ones to do this to create an open world. Pitfall was an open world in the sense that you could go back and forth across the world. I mean, you were not just scrolling in one direction or something like that. Calling it open world is a bit of a stretch because you still have a set goal, which is to collect all of the treasures on this map, which are in all of these... You know where they are. They're in all of these same places. And you're just moving around within a pretty constrained world To collect these treasures. So you still have one goal, one objective, and you're always maneuvering through a similar set of obstacles.
0: And it's usually left to right.
1: Yeah, exactly. And some up and down because uh, you can go down into the the, the caverns, sort of. There's a lower level and an upper level. Actually, the lower level is a complete tangent. But the lower level, you cross over fewer screens in the lower level to get through the same amount of space so that you can, like, use the lower level to to have shortcuts because it's fewer screens to move around. So, you know, there's some strategy involved there. But it's still within the confines of this pretty closed world, and it's still one objective. You're collecting all these treasures as fast as you can. So it's not open world. With Elite, we're taking this random number generation, creating this huge universe, and we're saying, go wherever you want, do whatever you want within the confines of what the engine allows you to do, and just have fun with it. Now, there is a progression system in the game still. They still wanted there to be an objective in the game. They didn't want to so divorce themselves from the concept of a game at the time or of an arcade game of the time that there was no objective at all. But they didn't want that objective to be points-based and they didn't want it to be collection-based. They didn't want it to be collect all 15 treasures and you win. They didn't want it to be earn the top score and the jealousy of your friends. They wanted something else. What they kind of realized is when someone is point chasing individually, and I'm not talking about when you're high score chasing, so you want to make sure that you get more points than the next guy. But when you're just at home collecting points yourself, you really pay attention to the milestones. 10,000 points is a big deal. 100,000 points is a big deal. 5 million points is a big deal. 4,600,723.7 is not a number you care about people just naturally gravitate towards what they consider to be milestone numbers. So they thought, well, let's drill down our kind of scoring system, our progression system, down to milestones and just have a few of them instead of having points, endless points. So they decided that when you achieved a certain number of kills in the game, you would move up a rank in notoriety within the game universe. And so that's how they gauge your overall progress. You start at harmless and then move up to mostly harmless. We did have some Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy fans here, as some of you have probably picked up on at this point.
0: Nah. (laughs)
1: And then you move on through all of these levels until you are the elite. The best in the galaxy. The elite. Well, due to character limitations on names back in those days and the fact that you really couldn't have spaces back in those days, they decided to drop the the because they would have had to, like, squash it together with no space and it would look really dumb. And so the Elite very quickly became Elite. That's how you got the name of your game, and that was the ultimate goal. You didn't have to strive for that goal. There was nothing that said, you will not enjoy this game or you will not progress in this game unless you are moving towards elite status. So even though there's an end goal in mind, as even most open world games have.
0: You are not constrained by that. You can do whatever you want. Right.
1: A very vague objective based on milestones and kill milestones. But in between that, you're mining, you're trading, you're collecting bounties, you're Going pirate, you're buying low, selling high, and just crafting your own story in space. This is space rendered in 3D graphics. We talked near the top of this about how both of them had been experimenting with 3D in the space games that they had been creating individually before they got together. The lead itself, as most people listening to this are probably aware, is also a 3D game. It's not polygonal. It's not filled shapes, filled sur- and it's not shaded surfaces, it's wireframe, but it is giving the illusion of movement in a 3D space. And again, this is something that quite simply should not be possible on a computer like the BBC Micro, because that is a lot to ask an 8-bit processor without any coprocessors to try and do.
0: We're amazed that it even works.
1: Right. Quite simply, the way they did it is they faked it.
0: Well, isn't that most computer games?
1: (laughs) I suppose, but I mean, they really faked it. They approximated, instead of doing exact 3D calculations on exactly where all of those lines appear in space, they approximated it because you're never so close to the model that if a wireframe is two pixels to the left from where it's supposed to be and therefore doesn't meet the other line exactly at the vertex, you're not going to notice it because you're not really that close to the object. So you actually didn't need to know exactly where each line and each vertex was supposed to be. You just had to make sure that they were essentially in the area that they were supposed to be. If you just ballpark it, that's a lot less calculation. That's a lot less math that the processor is doing. If you do that for too long, eventually the errors are going to get significant because you've missed it by a couple of pixels, you've missed it by a couple of pixels, you've missed it by a couple of pixels, and now none of these vertexes are anywhere near each other, and you have some horrible misshapen monstrosity on the screen.
0: Cthulhu comes towards (laughs) you from a distance. Shoot, lasers!
1: (laughs) Right. But what they did is that they put a routine, I don't know if it was literally a routine in the programming sense, but I'm just going to call it that in a layman's sense. They put a routine in where when the processor had an extra cycle, when something was not quite as intensive, when there was an extra cycle that they could sneak in, they would do an exact calculation. They wouldn't do it every single time. They wouldn't do it every single frame, not every single redraw. But by sneaking them in when the processor was free, there would be precise calculations just often enough that it would error correct so that you never had these wireframe shapes completely drifting apart and no longer looking like ships or space stations anymore.
0: Which really makes the whole thing just work.
1: Exactly. It was an incredible feat to do that. I mean, there were not very many 3D games. 3D perspective games is what I mean. In the home at this point, there had been a few in the arcade, very few, but not so many in the home because this is difficult programming to get this to work on something that is so limited. It's difficult programming to get it to work on something that can actually run this stuff, (laughs) that's actually designed to run this stuff.
0: Let alone something that's not designed to run it or even conceptually do anything remotely like that. You're trying to do 3D modeling here in order to show what's going on, but you're also having to maintain whatever it needs as far as the ship velocity, speed, mm-hmm. systems, mm-hmm. whatever might be in the same sector of space that may or may not be hostile or whatever may or may not be resources that you're trying to go to. Mm-hmm. So it's got all of this stuff it has to model and it has to do 3D calculations at the... <laughs> Okay, here's your ship, here's the asteroid, here's your lasers. Is that laser hitting the asteroid? Maybe.
1: (laughs) Right. That is quite the feat of programming. And the game was really like nothing that the UK market in particular had ever seen before. Though I wouldn't even say there's much like it that the US market had seen, but certainly nothing like the UK market had ever seen before. Initially, that made it very difficult for them to find a company willing to actually publish it. The first place they tried was Thorn EMI. Thorn EMI is one of Britain's, at the time, one of Britain's largest record labels. And Thorn EMI had decided that they wanted to get in on this computer game thing. Today, when we think of synergies between video games and other entertainment media, we usually think of it in terms of the movie business, if we're thinking of synergy at all. Because they're both visual media, they're both often storytelling media, though games obviously aren't always, it just feels in those senses like similar mediums. But back then, there was a lot more kind of similarity to the music industry because most of these products were not storytelling products. And they were being released on a media format that was far more akin to something that it felt like you could release music on, especially in the United Kingdom, where you'll recall that the entire market remained cassette tape based all the way through most of the 1980s. They never really went primarily to disc because of the increased cost of that. The cost of living in Britain was lower. They couldn't afford as expensive a thing. So even though a floppy disk is something that we in the United States don't think of as that expensive either, floppy disk drives were very expensive back then, even in the United States. They could set you back several hundred dollars all by themselves. A tape player of some kind was far, far cheaper. So because floppy disk drives were so expensive, most British computer owners just had a tape drive, and so that market was cassette-driven. Now we're really in the wheelhouse of the music industry because they're selling cassettes with music on them. It's not in any way a stretch to sell cassettes with game programs on them. So Thorny MI was one record company, Virgin was another, that looked at this market that was beginning to expand in Britain in kind of the 82-83 time frame and decided that they wanted to be in on this thing. So, for a brief period of time, I had a, a games division. It didn't last very long, I don't think, or at least it wasn't successful for very long, but they decided to try it. Braven actually had a contact at ThornyMI already. So, that's the first place that they shopped this game. The ThornyMI people were very impressed with the technology. It was impossible not to be impressed by the technology. But they were basically like, that's great, that's a really cool tech demo. Now, come back to me when you have three lives and you get a new life at 10,000 points. And
0: <laughs> We want the tried and true method.
1: <laughs> exactly. So they were flat out rejected by Thorny EMI on this game. At that point, they start shopping around some because they don't have contacts at this point. And Acorn itself becomes the most logical place to try next because Braben and Bell are in Cambridge. They were Cambridge students. and. Acorn is in Cambridge, as we said. That's where the company was. Acorn had recently created a subsidiary called Acorn Soft in order to market software for their computers, like the BBC Micro. So they had a software arm. So they head over there, and unlike the Thorn EMI guys, who are basically record executives posing as game experts... These are people that understand software. Curry and Hauser were hardware people. They weren't really into games and software, but they had people on staff, and the people running Acornsoft were people that understood computer games and computer software. They weren't just Me Too hangers-on like these record industry people. So they get it. They get it right away. They're like, this is amazing. I mean, they have some suggestions on tweak this, fix that, but, I mean, they are sold on the concept. They are sold on the game. They are like, absolutely, we will publish this thing for you. It takes off. It sells 100,000 or so units very quickly, within a few months. On the BBC Micro, I mean, 100,000 units was a hit on just about any computer platform back then. But on the BBC Micro, which had such a small install base, that was outstanding. It's often said, incorrectly, that Elite sold about 150,000 copies and there were uh, about 150,000... BBC Micro's on the market, and so the penetration was virtually 100%. That's not actually true, because while Elite did sell about that much on the BBC Micro, people are mixing up timeframes. The the BBC Micro did sell a couple million units over its entire lifespan. So by the time Elite is getting up to 150000 or so whatever in sales... There are well more BBC micros than that on the market. There was a period in time where there were maybe only 150,000 BBC micros on the market, but it was not the same time that Elite was on the market. But still, that's an incredible amount to sell on a platform that has such low market penetration. That is a fantastic amount of sales. Acorn Soft knew this was going to be something special, so they did some interesting things with it. In order to ground people in this open world, Because you can't have much story or much detail within the game itself because...
0: Except space. Yeah,
1: you've just got all the space already. So they wanted something to help people understand this concept, that this was a universe that had people in it that was lived in and that you were just going out and exploring and making your way in. So they actually had a sci-fi author create a little novella that they put in the box with each copy of Elite that they sold. And this was such a brilliant move, because in a time when people were expecting that a game is just you're shooting ships for points and you're just getting as high a score as you can, etc., they would perhaps be totally lost when you just put them in this world and are like, now, go. (laughs) You know, there's no tutorial level or anything. (laughs) They didn't have tutorials back then. There was no space for tutorials.
0: It really demonstrates the first time you have a game that has a story to it, something to draw you in that brings a narrative structure to it. You're the star of that narrative story. Having a novel or manual that goes with a piece of software that tells you what that is is something that goes on later on with a lot of computer games Mm -hmm. and a lot of other things. The King's Quest series had a booklet that came with it. That was used not only for copy protection, but it gave you a lot more background as to what's going on when you're dumped into that.
1: Uh, Blizzard games were well known for that. The early Warcrafts, Warcraft and Warcraft 2, Diablo, all had, uh, you know, elaborate world histories, elaborate lore in the instruction book Definitely. to set the stage. You know, there, there's not a continuing story in Elite. It's not like some of these where the story is started in the book and then you finish the story in the game. Because... There really isn't any story in the game. You're exploring systems, you're doing all these tasks, and you're hoping to kill enough things so you get elite status. What it does is it makes it very clear that this is a universe that's lived in, and these are the kind of organizations in the universe, these are the kinds of things that happen in the universe, and and it gets you to understand, okay, I get it. I've been plopped in the middle of this universe, and I'm going to trade commodities, and I'm going to take bounties, and I'm going to try to hit elite status. It prepares you, it puts you in the mindset for that kind of gameplay, which was a very atypical type of gameplay in that time period.
0: And something that is very necessary for that time period, because you do have all the people who are just in the mindset of shoot everything, get all the points, and you have something here that is really breaking the mold, and so you need to have some sort of segue into that new mold.
1: Exactly. So that was a very savvy move on Acornsoft's part. They got it. That was very good at them. Acornsoft was never a huge publisher, primarily because the BBC micro market was never a big market. It was kind of impossible for a company like that to become a big company. And they eventually throw in the towel and sell their entire back catalog to, I think it's Superior Software, which was one of the few third party Publishers that focused almost exclusively on, on the BBC Micro and on the Acorn computers. That, that was just something that was never going to work because Acorn was never successful enough. But they were savvy enough to understand this, and they did that very well. Braben and Bell were very smart. They only gave Acornsoft the rights to the game on the Acorn computer platforms. Ah. So they didn't make much money on the BBC version. Because, A, because of the way their deal or whatever was structured with Acorn Soft, but B, because you could only sell so much into that ecosystem. But the game became very successful. The game became very well known. And the owners of your ZX Spectrums and Commodore 64s and what have you were just salivating at the idea of being able to play that game. And the publishers knew it. And so. They did something, this may have been the first time it was ever done. If it wasn't the first time, it was certainly one of the first times it was ever done. They retained an agent, and they auctioned the rights to Elite on other platforms. Nice. (laughs) And they knew they'd have plenty of takers, because by now, Elite on the BBC Micro was a sensation.
0: And all of the other computer manufacturers knew, if I get exclusivity to Elite... My system is going to be the one that's going to be sold.
1: Mm -hmm. There was a bidding war for the game, and it just so happened that just this time, the British telephone monopoly, British telecom, was getting into games because they saw that there was going to be deregulation in the telephone industry coming up. They knew that they were going to have to become more entrepreneurial. Again, this is Margaret Thatcher's Britain, where national monopolies and whatnot are being broken down in favor of, of entrepreneurial activity. So uh, British Telecom knew that they were going to have to get more entrepreneurial and they were going to have to expand out of just having this telephone monopoly. So they experimented with founding a games division and a computer software division called TelecomSoft. They had the might of British Telecom behind them, which have, uh, you know, which are pretty darn well funded. So Telecomsoft ends up winning this bidding war. I forget exactly what they paid. I could probably look it up, but it did very well. I mean, they they made out very well on that deal, Braben and Bell did. So Telecomsoft releases it on all other pro, uh, platforms. And now that it's on more common platforms, I mean, it just sells hundreds of thousands of units. I mean, it's just a huge smash. It's one of the biggest games in in Britain, and it even, it's the first British game to even penetrate the United States a little bit, because Telecomsoft does open an American branch. They're never hugely successful in the U.S., but they do bring Elite over to the U.S., and Elite is the first game from Britain, I believe, that causes any kind of sensation in the U.S. It's still not doing as well in the U.S. as homegrown games. Those British companies never have the same penetration in this time period in the American computers as as American companies do. It does pretty well in America, too, and it's kind of the first game that from Britain that does that, that has some success in the U.S. It's, it's ported everywhere. It even gets an NES port eventually, at least in uh, the United Kingdom. Not sure if that made it to the United States or not, but it was at least released in the United Kingdom on the NES. It's just a huge game. They start working on a sequel, Pretty quickly, and it just gets bogged down for years, and they start infighting. Braben and Bell start not getting along with each other anymore. Eventually they split. <laughs> Braven continues working on the sequel. It finally comes out in the early 90s, Frontier Elite. It doesn't do nearly as well as the first one. <laughs> but Elite persists in the consciousness of Britain. It becomes the starting point for a lot of other open-world. Projects and of course it remains such a powerful brand and such a powerful memory in the minds of British game players that Braben is able to successfully bring it back decades later. Is Elite Dangerous, which is doing very well for itself. Thank you very much with a hundred billion <laughs> systems and little. It looks
0: pretty when you look at its 3D map.
1: Yep, and you know absolutely phenomenal graphics and the occasional little. Events slowly evolving throughout it, like this very slowly evolving encounter with alien species.
0: Yeah, and I believe the aliens were actually were in the original game.
1: Right, but it took a long, long time because it's such a vast galaxy for anyone to find them. hmm took a couple of years, I think, and now that they've been discovered, they're starting to introduce other elements, with the aliens taking on an even more prominent role, and we'll see where that goes.
0: Right. And what's neat about the current one is you can do all the sort of things that you could in the original Elite. Mine, explore, piracy. Mm -hmm. You make your own story.
1: Exactly. In a far more detailed world, because the graphics have come so far. And obviously there are other games that have been influenced... EVE Online, obviously, (laughs) doesn't exist without Elite. It takes it to the next level by having all of this multiplayer and MMO elements layered on top of it so that you have all of this user-generated drama going on with different factions going to war with each other and all of that craziness that there's literally a whole book now that's been written about the history of wars in EVE Online told from a combination in-universe, out-of-universe perspective. (laughs) Um, I mean, you get that from from Elite, obviously, but the big one, the most important one, and the reason why you can trace a direct line from Elite to all that's going on in open world today is Grand Theft Auto.
0: Which is another British property.
1: Exactly. Grand Theft Auto, the original top-down game, not the 3D one. So the 3D ones were also created by the same company, but we're going back before Grand Theft Auto 3 and the move to, to 3D were created by uh, the Scottish company DMA, which up until that point had been most well-known for the international hit Lemmings.
0: Ah, Lemmings. I loved you, Lemmings.
1: After kind of milking the Lemmings franchise for a while and getting a lot of notoriety off of that, they were able to swing a development contract with Nintendo for the N64. They were part of the so-called Dream Team of developers that were given advanced information on the N64, given technical information and dev kits, etc., before other companies, on the condition that they create an exclusive game for the N64 that specifically showcased the superiority of the N64 as a 3D platform over the Sony PlayStation, which was a 3D platform, but had various limitations compared to the N64, though the N64 also had some limitations compared to the PlayStation. That's a whole different episode. But the point is, they were on the N64, and that's what their A-team was doing. And while their A-team was working on Body Harvest, this big 3D N64 prestige project, they had this little team of newcomers that were working on some simple PC cops and robbers game called Race and Chase. Race and Chase was going to be kind of a uh, fairly linear, mission-driven game where you're playing the cops and you're chasing down the robbers, or you could play the robbers and evading the cops. The idea was that they were going to simulate a fairly accurate representation of a city, not just having a grid of streets and buildings and pedestrians walking around, but they'd have traffic lights that were actually Turning green, yellow, and red in a particular uh, in a realistic pattern, and they might have a train that was on a set schedule that was moving around, so a uh, complete simulation of a city on top of which you put these missions where you're the cop chasing down the criminals and and that kind of thing and and that was race and chase. The game wasn't working very well there were a lot of new people on it because they had their A team on the N64 product that was going to be their big product that they were betting their future on. So these guys were having some trouble making it work. It was buggy. Turns out a lot of the gameplay wasn't very fun. Then they figured out a couple of things. First, they figured out it was far more fun being the criminals than it was being the cops. And so it became entirely focused on the criminal side of things.
0: We always like being the bad guys.
1: Right. Then the other thing they realized is that the linearity of it didn't really make it that fun. If we've got this fully functioning city, why not give the player more freedom within the confines of that city? And one of the main drivers of this, and I'm sure he wasn't the only driver of it, one of the main drivers of this was Gary Penn, who was brought in to be a producer on the game. Gary Penn had worked with David Braben on Frontier Elite, the the sequel to Elite. He came into this project partway through having spent time working on a more open-world game, and he wasn't the only one that pushed in that direction. And there were other games besides Frontier and and Elite that moved people as well, other games like Syndicate, which was somewhat open-world. Essentially, once Gary Pinn came in, it became, let's do Elite in a City, and that's really how they conceptualized it. That's really how they felt about it. They considered it themselves Elite in a City. The idea that you have this fully functioning space that you can drive anywhere around and interact with however you want, but that we're also going to lay missions on top of that that you can take in virtually any order, because these original Grand Theft Auto games were even less linear than the 3D ones. The 3D ones gave you some choice of who you went to first uh, in order to do missions. But there was still a little more, there's more plot in them. So they did constrain you a little bit in terms of who you went to. In Grand Theft Auto, you just, you went up to a payphone and that payphone would have a mission. You could decide which missions you were going to take by going to different payphones. You weren't constrained into a particular path through them. The entire reason they decided to do that was primarily because of Elite. And because of the connection that people like Gary Penn had to the people that worked on Elite. You can trace straight from Elite to Grand Theft Auto, and you can trace straight from the Grand Theft Auto series to all the open-world stuff going on today. Obviously, there were other games that were important. Shenmue was one of the very early open-world games. Yu Suzuki was Sega, and I mean, I'm not aware of them being influenced by Elite at all. There's always more than one influence on anything. But the fact of the matter is, when you play an open-world game today, you still owe a huge debt to what Elite did back in nineteen eighty four, and that is why Elite is certainly, I think, one of the top ten or so most influential and important video games of all time.
0: Well said. Well, now that we've done everything that we can to become elite, we will have to go into some other topic in year three.
1: Absolutely. So we're still going to stay away from companies a little while longer because we did that, uh, we had our Atari 4-part extravaganza. We're going to take a little break from that, though we'll be back. We'll do that some more. That took two months. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. This was the very first time, uh, it turns out, at uh, the beginning of our third year, it's the very first time we did a focus on a particular game. One other thing we haven't done too much of is focusing on a particular person. We did it with Gunpei Okoy in regards to Nintendo a few episodes back, but I think it might be nice to return to that again for just another nice change of pace. That requires obviously a giant of the industry. We need somebody that is substantial enough all on their own to to carry a 90-minute episode, and one name that certainly comes to mind right away is Sid Meier. Sid Meier is a person that has been successful in this industry for over 30 years, which most people haven't been. Certainly there have been people in the industry that long, but they normally move on into bigger levels of development, or they end up going into little niches where they're still doing just fine for themselves, but they're not releasing mainstream AAA games anymore. It's a hard field to stay relevant in because it's a field that's changing all the time. And Sid Meier is one of these rare individuals that has managed to stay relevant in the field despite all that. And has, in his own way, also contributed very mightily to this kind of open-ended, open-world kind of gameplay that we have today. So it even fits in very nicely with what we just did with Elite here. So uh, next time we will explore the life and times of Sid Meier.
0: We'll be civilizing him. (laughs) Sure. All right. Sid Meyer, next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where we have links to some of the things we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Give us an email at feedback at theycreateworlds.com, and follow us on Twitter at podcasts. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com forward slash song forward slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license.